Welcome to the Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This program is brought to you by Osiris Media, a network that connects you more deeply with the music you love. I'm a dad and a husband first, but out in the world, I'm a professional musician and a political junkie. For those that know me, this connection between politics and music is natural. So each week, I'll be speaking with top-notch political reporters, policy experts, and musicians about what's at stake in this seismic moment of cultural change. We've understood the healing power of music since long before we had the scientific means to study it. Articles from official psychology journals to wellness blogs proclaim what we know instinctively, that music has the capacity to transform our emotional state, which in turn can improve our physical health. Taking a step further, the country's most prestigious research institutions are discovering the extraordinary effect music can have on brain development, with potentially huge implications for the medical community. Today, I'll speak with legendary soprano Renee Fleming about her work with the Kennedy Center and the National Institutes of Health, exploring the intersection of neuroscience and music called the Sound Health Initiative. A four-time Grammy winner and global star of the stage, Renee has spent her life advocating for music programs that promote a healthy society, and this research takes that leadership to an entirely new level. Renee also explains what she's up to musically during this time including a new Kennedy Center collaboration called Music and the Mind Live. Recent guests include bassist Victor Wooten and neuroscientist Dr. Daniel Levitin. There's a link to their conversation and original music they create for it in the show notes. Finally, Renee talks about being on Joe Biden's Artist Council and how musicians can strike the right balance when taking a stand for what we believe in. Enjoy the show. Renee Fleming, welcome to The Politics of Truth. Thank you, Bob. Renee, it's an honor to have you here today with me. It's just really fascinating because one of the aspects of this show is how do entertainers, musicians, use their their voice? Myself, it's pediatric cancer because that affected me personally. You wear so many advocacy hats. Not only are you a legendary opera singer, soprano, and just legendary musical vocalist. You've won four Grammys, at least. By this point, our listeners have heard your accolades because I've read them in the introduction. But you equally wear so many hats as an advocate. So I think I want to begin by asking you about being the artistic advisor at large to the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts and the Sound Health Initiative. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, I... uh... I, you know, I sort of started uh, in Chicago at Lyric Opera Chicago as a consultant there and discovered, um, first of all, that audience development was really something that I saw, you know, from that sort of mile high view was important. And uh, when the Kennedy Center uh, also reached out to me to develop a relationship with them, um, with that hat on, and also in thinking again about the audience, it occurred to me that, you know, all of this research that was going on um, really for years now uh, in in the context of music in the brain, particularly neuroscience and music, uh, was of great interest to me, partly because singing is so bizarre that we take this instrument that we're all born with and try to bring it to a virtuosic, you know, extreme 
and doing it through coaxing the body because you know none of this is they're all involuntary muscles for the most part so so backing up just really quick what is audience development so it's thinking about you know particularly for opera which is a which is an ancient art form it's a very expensive art form because it combines all of the arts. You know, so you have dance and you have the visual arts, you have the orchestra and the singers on stage and you have theater costumes and all of that. And so it's quite extreme in terms of uh, what's required and thinking about how to get people to just try it. You know, mm -hmm. we, not everyone's going to love it, but um, if they don't ever try it, if they're afraid to go in, if they're worried about what they have to wear, etc. So that's, that really was interesting to me, is how to kind of make those connections. And I discovered and really feel strongly that if we understand um, all of creativity, really, and particularly artistic creativity through the lens of health, medicine, who we are as human beings, it becomes to sound like it's something we, we can't live without. It's a very compelling argument. And I've become incredibly fascinated by the whole sector you know, meeting francis collins at a dinner party and uh, it went from there i said can we collaborate the nih the national institutes of health and the kennedy center two national institutions huge institutions can we please collaborate and he said yes deborah rudder said yes prior to uh, being involved in audience development for opera is that what sparked your interest in music and the brain I was interested in music in the brain because of my singing, because I had a lot of stage fright a couple of times. I had uh, somatic pain, which was a manifestation really of stage fright. So that's sort of, you know, these are pains that are created by your mind, basically, you know, and in my case, it was sort of a hedge against performance anxiety. So I just kept reading everything that came across my, uh, my desktop, as it were, about this um, sector interested me. And so I got very passionate about it. So w would the somatic pain occur when you were about to sing or would the somatic pain just happen in life? It was in preparation typically for a high risk event. I would start to have like debilitating tension in my neck and the trapezius muscles. And I would think, I can't sing, I can't sing, I can't sing. And then it would lift, you know, magically when I finally went on stage. So there was some, so I, you know, I, I don't even fully understand it. Maybe it was this kind of a, if you suffer, you can succeed. I don't, you know, some, some deal with the devil, I think, in terms of uh, how I was going to move through life as a performer. It wasn't going to be easy. I had paralyzing stage fright before we started and when I first started with the band and our first time on Letterman or these big events, I would walk out on stage and be tunnel vision like and I, I don't know how I would get through it. Now I find it hits me at the strangest times. It could be a Wednesday night in Lincoln, Nebraska. And we're walking on stage and I just get the butterflies and I get the cold sweat and all that. What does stage fright feel like for Renee Fleming on stage at the Lincoln Center or the Kennedy Center or any of these amazing high profile stages you've performed at in your life? How does that manifest in the middle of the performance? Well, you know, it's when I had the worst period, it did happen in the middle of a performance that was a sort of like a click, a trigger of some sort. And, it, you know, it's never the biggest venues and the high the highest risk performances we really are prepared for. You know, it's somehow it's catching you off guard, I think, in that in that sort of smaller venue, that smaller audience. It feels suddenly in that moment very intimate. So this was back in the late 90s when I had the worst time with it. And it took me almost a year 
to get through it. But I, I kept performing, which is very important because we know Barbara Streisand and Sir Lawrence Olivier and other performers who stopped and said, well, I'm just going to take a break. And then they don't go back for a long mm-hmm. time. So it's, it is a quite, it's not something uh, I would wish on anyone. It's not easy to deal with. So for me, of course, it's tightening the throat. It's not being able to breathe. It's, and that tunnel vision that you described, mm-hmm. which is like a panic attack, really. Yeah. Um, those, are, those are tough symptoms. Uh, but you have to slowly work through it. And, uh, you know, one of the things, there were two things that helped me. One was discovering the root of it. You know, where does this come from? You know, who are, what is in my psyche? Why are some of my colleagues find it so easy to perform? Why do they love adrenaline and love all of that? And, and the second thing was really changing how I saw the audience. So rather than a judgmental body that was going to hold up scorecards, you know, between one and ten. And uh, I saw them as someone that I wanted to share with. That made a huge difference, that this art form was flowing through me, not from me, through me to the audience. And how lucky am I to be able to share this with people who are in need, who want something beautiful, who want to experience an emotionally cathartic evening. So let's get back to music in the mind as far as... uh what you are actively doing to advocate for it and to raise awareness about it. So you hold these webinars weekly and they are called Music in the Mind, the intersection of music, health, and neuroscience. I uh, viewed your most recent one, which was about music therapy. And this really struck me in my heart because as we've talked about, many of our listeners are aware, I have a special needs daughter who was diagnosed with a brain tumor when she was two. As a result of that diagnosis and the taking the tumor out, it took out the right side of her brain. So she has severe disabilities. But one thing that she loves and in one way that she excels is with music. And we've had uh, periods of music therapy as well. Actually, every day at our house is music therapy. Um, So talk a little bit about that aspect of music in the mind. Well, what what really I thought was extraordinary and what helped me understand why scientists were studying music, because I really I thought, come on, they've got they they must have better things to do, uh, is that we're hardwired for music in a very powerful way. And it goes back, of course, the many, many centuries that we've been on this earth far before modern history. Um, communication occurred in a in a sort of a musical way. There would be social cohesion through drumming, through chanting. Um, the bone flute was discovered that's 40,000 years old. And Neanderthals had the same vocal structure I do. So I thought, okay, that's what it is. It's just been with us forever. So the part of the brain that um, processes music is different from the part of the brain that processes speech. And also, when you put all of it together, music actually activates more parts of the brain than other activities altogether. Uh, And why do toddlers, for instance, respond so powerfully to rhythmic music, to a beat? And and they respond, they don't just bob and move, they they respond with joy. You know, Mm. it it is an incredible thing to see. You put on music and and these children just, uh, they can't sit still. They love it. So the fact that she can memorize, that Hallie can memorize mm-hmm. so well. So parts of her brain are probably going to be extremely strengthened because of the plasticity that we all have. And because she's so young, it will work for her probably even better than it would work for us. It's incredible to watch. And, and uh, you know, I, I was telling Renee before we, before we began recording that it can be frustrating as a parent because you see these 
areas of education where she's lagging, like as far as like learning how to read and, and all those things. But yet she will memorize a song or a book that's read to her, a dialogue for a film. She can memorize that. What, what are some ways that you've noticed music therapists capitalize on those? Music activates one part of the brain, another part of the brain may lie dormant. How do you build on that, the strength to get the most out of it? Well, I mean, I think for, for her then, for instance, learning by rote through song could probably be very useful. The second or third uh, webinar, this isn't something new that I've done to kind of mm-hmm. stay productive and stay connected to this material in this long period of time when I'm not performing. The third uh, webinar was about children, childhood development and music and how, how powerful it is, um, you know, in terms of using music as a learning tool, number one, but also the fact that children connect so powerfully with music and also connecting parents to their children through musical means. So, and these two researchers are based in um, Virginia and in Nashville. And so I I definitely would suggest you check that out. Uh, Miriam Lentz has, has just received a big NIH grant, in fact, to continue her research. And then I was in Guangzhou in October, and what I found interesting was that one of the presenters there who works with children with disabilities said that in many cases, children can find it hard to communicate, but they can always communicate through music somehow, whether it's rhythm, whether it's that checking into that joy, and they, make a, they can make a connection, a very powerful connection with people that way. Um, so there are lots of different methods, and there are also many interventions, um, but I would, you know, music therapists who are trained to work with children um, can be, you know, incredibly helpful. So we talked a little bit about, you know, my, my situation with Hallie. What about the other end of the age spectrum? Senior citizens who might be experiencing dementia or uh, early Alzheimer's or even full-blown Alzheimer's. What have scientists and researchers discovered about music and the brain in those situations? Well, it is amazing, but it is the last memory to go in patients with dementia and Alzheimer's. And I actually witnessed this firsthand with my husband's aunt. In the last year of her life, she could only sing songs. She didn't know the people around her. But if you said, I'm looking, she would start singing over a four-leaf clover. And you'd get the whole spectrum of music, particularly from that era. So, you know, these muscle memory areas of the brain maintain their strength right until the end. And science, of course, wants to know why and wants to discover if perhaps that can be strengthened to enable people to regain their sense of self, maintain a sense of self longer uh, with these diseases. This is a disease, um, really Alzheimer's disease that I've seen uh, as I give presentations around the world. People have more fear of that than anything else right now. So are we at the beginning of this road of learning about this? I mean, we're not in the sense that there has been research going on for a long time, and it spans uh, uh, childhood development is a major area, a major focus that children play who play an instrument have a leg up um, uh, in terms of academic achievement and life achievement. Um, it spans certainly the basic science, and, and, and you know I would put evolution in there, and then of course all of these therapies for PTSD and trauma, Parkinson's. Uh, music is very powerful for movement disorders, for instance, um, with either traumatic brain injury or Parkinson's disease. People can move better with a beat than they can without. 
So there's, it's promising. And that's the reason why the NIH just gave uh, $20 million in grants, uh, because they want to see some of these areas strengthen, and particularly aging disorders. So you're talking about these grants that the NIH is giving out. That means that the federal government is allocating money. That means that Congress, they've got the power of the purse. That means that somehow Republicans and Democrats are getting together and they're voting to give this money to the NIH. Well, it's funny you mention that because we're not there yet. This money has been allocated within the NIH so far. I would love it if Congress got together and said, we think this is important and we think this deserves funding. That would be amazing. I'm assuming you've made trips to Capitol Hill on this very issue. I haven't yet. No, you let's go. Not. Okay, let's go. Let's let's go. We'll schedule a trip together. We should. We definitely should. So I've noticed in my trips to Capitol Hill, just even talking about you know brain tumors, or it used to be music. And before Hallie got sick, I was really interested in music and the arts. I still am, but there's only so many hours in the day, and we've known a lot of families now affected by pediatric cancer. But I find that politicians love musicians. They love to meet musicians. They love to hang out with musicians. And something that gets they get really excited about meeting people like us. And we are excited to meet people like them often. But it's a leap from rubbing elbows with a politician to getting them across the finish line and getting support for the bill that would help uh, allocate these funds. Right, right. In fact, we're, I mean, the thing I would like to see is, is for greater support for gig economy altogether. Because I know so many singers who are out of work and, and of course musicians, and they don't really factor into this, any kind of a corporate structure that would automatically give them loans and support and during the pandemic. So, you know, the understanding of how much we contribute to the economy, how many jobs, and it's not just us as performers, it's everybody who supports us. It's even people who provide parking and food. It's a big economy. And, you know, I agree with you. We, we, we have to kind of keep kind of shouting to the rafters of our, our contribution. Hey everybody, I know we don't get out like we used to, but I still like to have a close shave. I've tried every razor blade on the market and I finally found the best one for me and I think it'd be great for you as well. It's called Harry's Razor Blades. Have you heard of these? I'll tell you, the blade itself gives me the cleanest, closest shave I've ever had. And right now, for a limited time, listeners of my show can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com politics. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, five blade razor, with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel and aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go when we finally get on the go again. Go to harrys.com politics to start shaving better today. Not only are you an advocate for music in the brain, but you've also been the subject of a study. You took part in a functional MRI and you sang and talked and thought about music while scientists and researchers looked at what was happening inside your brain. Tell us about that experience a little bit. Well, it was really extraordinary because, uh, I, you know, I spent two hours in the fMRI machine 
And so that right there, I don't think I quite realized I was signing up for that length of time. It was uh, an experiment devised by one of the scientists at the NIH that had me singing. Um, and I got to choose the song, imagining singing the song and speaking. And, uh, and then they compared the results. And what was interesting in my case, at least, imagining singing was the most powerful of the three. It had the strongest effect on the brain which surprised the scientists. They expected singing to be the most powerful, but they ultimately kind of decided that because I'm a singer, you know, singing is second nature to me, uh, and a sort of an average person having to sing in the fMRI would have created a different result. But I found it fascinating, you know, because imagining singing took a little bit more effort, uh, you know, a little bit more concentration, tuning out the noise, et cetera, focus. Um, that's why I think that result was there. But you could see that the brain lights up and it lights up, you know, of course, the, the musical part of the brain lights up. There is a music room in the brain, actually, which is pretty fascinating. Where, where, where is it? It's not where speech is. It's the opposite side. So it's, it's fascinating to me that this is all with us from history. And we don't really evolve that quickly, which is why as much as we would like to be not requiring the social cohesion, it, it's clear that when we don't have it, things fall apart quite quickly. And we're seeing that now. So all of these things that have been with us forever are extremely important. So talk a little bit about some of the other charities that you're deeply involved with. Uh, well, Sing for Hope, um, these are two wonderful young singers who, although they were busy with their own careers and young families, decided to really invest in community and community building um, and service. And they did it through using the volunteer time of artists in, in New York City. And they've expanded now to Syria, um, to other places, and, and, and they've expanded in a really beautiful way. So they're, the, they're responsible, for instance, to putting pianos all over the New York area uh, once a year. They're painted by visual artists. So I love uh, supporting them. I love the two very forward-thinking uh, arts organizations in New York. One is called um, National Sawdust. Paula Pristini runs it, also run by two young women. And the other one, Beth Morrison Projects and Prototype Festival, which is an, uh, a very cutting-edge opera uh, organization. Um, I think they're fantastic. And I, I support the organizations I work with. So it's, it's Carnegie Hall, Kennedy Center, Lyric Opera of Chicago, and LA Opera. I remember a couple years ago, we were at a festival and I was talking to a guy who was a manager and he managed a lot of jazz artists. And he said to me, he's like, it's a dying art form, meaning that the audiences were falling off. And so preparing for this interview, I was wondering, like, where is opera right now? Where's classical music? And I found a study from 2019 from the MIDIA research, and they found that the average age of the classical music listener is 45 years old, which is younger than you would think. Basically, the argument was that classical music is doing fine. People are still turned on to it. They're getting maybe more turned on to it at this point. What are you seeing in opera? So I agree with that because classical music now is available and accessible to everybody. We have YouTube. One of my daughters uh, came up to me when she was in high school and just said, I'm really into 40s song stylists. What do you know about Dinah Washington? And I said, what? Where did you get this? She said, oh, YouTube. So I think that that's an advantage. Um, it's a disadvantage for us, obviously, because it's all free now. Um, but 
certainly the accessibility is important. It's also incredibly international. You know, I, as I said, I was in China in October for most of the month, and there's a rabid interest in classical music there. And the audience is young women, like women in their early 20s, for me at least, which I found fascinating in some of the territories. Um, but it's very much a, a culture of youth because they're just discovering it. So, yeah, I'm not worried about it. Um, Opera is a little bit different because, as I said, it's very expensive to put on. So if you can't support it with ticket sales or philanthropic support, then it just becomes tougher. It's not going to go away. It's never going to go away because it's basically theater with music, which mm. we love. I mean, everybody loves it in some form or another. Um, but the question is, you know, how, what would it look like? And what's it going to look like after the pandemic, frankly? Um, will all of these organizations survive? I think our industry is going to change dramatically. Yes. I mean, we're all having to get our digital game up. There, there need to be better ways of performing together in the digital space. Um, the technology has to kind of get up to speed with that. We're finding it hard. I don't know how, how you're managing. Well, yeah, we're not uh, doing anything over over Zoom. I'm teaching lessons. I've taught some bass lessons, and it's been so enriching for me. You know who's on my next webinar is Victor Wooten. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Yeah, with Dan Levitin. Dan Levitin wrote This Is Your Brain on Music, and so I'm super excited about it. I've that. been thinking about that book a lot. It's fascinating. He's an incredibly erudite, smart guy, and a really good musician, too, Dan. Well, that's going to be a webinar worth checking out for sure. We will promote it on here. One last question. Tell me, what, what have you been doing musically during this time? Are you, are you preparing to record an album? How have you been keeping busy musically? So for me, I've been, um, I use this opportunity to do some programming. I've done some online performances. Um, John Curliano, who won a Pulitzer Prize uh, for a composition, reached out to me and said, I want to set this piece for you. It's the poem that went viral, Kitty O'Meara's piece, The People Stayed Home and The People Stayed Home. So we premiered that last week. And I said, well, with piano or guitar or something, you know, once, no, he said, I want it to just be you. So it's very, very frightening to sing something alone that's three minutes long and, um, and make it rich. But I became so obsessed with trying to make it perfect. I did 65 takes of it, which was a little bit, I thought, Renee, get just pick one. How did you prepare that then? It says so you sang it a cappella, but he scored it for you. So what's the process of you learning that song and becoming that song and then ultimately singing it and recording it? Well, I play piano badly, not well enough to play for myself. You know, that's what I'm missing. If I could, I could perform online if I could play something, you know, uh, most of you can. So, but I could learn it. So I certainly, I learned it and I loved it. I really loved the piece. So I, I learned it very quickly. And the hardest thing is producing yourself. You know, for me, who's never, I sing without amplification 90% of the time. We just sing in a space that's acoustically wonderful and, and hope for the best. But now I have to create the sound and the visual and do my own hair and makeup and wardrobe and uh, the camera angle and the lighting. That's a lot. But we could all look at this as a sabbatical time. We're not on the road. Um, we're home. It's enriching to be with the family. I've been home for the longest stretch in 20 years. And so one way I've been looking at this is, is as a sabbatical. That means personal enrichment. 
And it sounds like the whole exercise of you recording that poem, you know, learning it and then, you know, recording the actual, you know, the actual singing of it and like producing that and getting it just right. And then the visual aspect of it, it's, it sounds like we all, no matter where we are in our careers, no matter how much we've achieved, this is a time where we can uh, learn more about ourselves. And then when we finally do hit that stage... You know, someday with that audience who they're there to share this with us, right? They're not there to judge us, although I have the same fears that, that you you had to conquer. Uh, I just can't imagine how glorious and warm and just uh, how it will elevate the human experience uh, when we finally do hit the stage. And people will be so happy to see us again. And we'll be happy to see them. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to add? Well, the only other two things I'm working on are two projects, one with another artist. It's a piece of theater that we are putting together. And the other is uh, a recital that would be digitally released. And, and these are both with two big institutions, the Metropolitan Opera and the Kennedy Center. And, you know, they haven't been announced yet, but hopefully they'll come to fruition. But you're right. I mean, I I sort of got tired of talking to my daughters about what we're eating every day. So so we started a book club. And uh, we find ways of connecting with the people we love. You know, one is in New York and one is in L.A. and I'm in D.C., so I miss them very much. COVID has impacted everything about society. It's impacted the entertainment business. It's impacted politics. And we're in election year. Right. You know, my kids are public school kids. You talk about music in schools. Well, there are funding issues. And... You would think that every politician, be it from the local level, from the school board, to the state level, to the federal government, they would be all for music in schools. And I think they are in theory, but when it comes down to allocating the funds, they can be hesitant. Is there a candidate that you see yourself supporting uh, in this election? And, and how, how out there would you be for said candidate once you make that decision? Well, actually, I'm on Joe Biden's Artist Council, so uh, I am, you know, actively trying to help uh, with this campaign. Uh, I think we need change. I really do. I, the way the, the country is now so divided, the tragedy of the protests, uh, and, and actually they've been fantastic in that they've really alerted all of us to the need for change wholesale change. So uh, I, I do hope that people get behind going back to a, a discourse that is more inclusive, that's, that's, uh, that's actually kinder and, and more productive. What is the artist's role in the political campaign? I think it's to be determined at this point. As you said, everything has changed with the pandemic. Obviously, we can't travel, we can't, uh, we can't support in those ways, but it, it, it's sort of being developed. And, and um, you know, we all, we all hope that we can have an effect. You know, we have platforms as performers that, uh, and we have audience, uh, the audience members who can, who will look to us for not just um, entertainment, but for leadership. Our band, we've largely stayed out of politics, but the times that we did take a stand on, on an issue, we get some blowback from people in our fan base. Has that happened to you in the past? And how do you deal with that? It does happen. Um, and I love everybody. I mean, I grew up, you know, in my lifetime, everybody by and large was in the middle. You know, we didn't even talk about politics because we were all kind of on the same page, you know, sort of socially more liberal and, and uh, economically a little more conservative. And, and of course, there are huge variations depending on region and where you are. But uh, 
I am a, a person who really thinks that we all can find common ground. We can all come together on many things and let's focus on those positive things and try to make lives better for our children. As parents, I think it's incredibly important that we leave them with a world also, you know, also with an environment that is safe and uh, well, that, that gives them a future. When I hear my daughters who are in their early 20s talk about how long they think the planet is going to survive, it breaks my heart because I never gave that a thought. I had the most innocent childhood. Um, I was very fortunate. I realized that. Renee Fleming, thank you so, so much for your time today. Thank you. It's a real pleasure talking to you, Bob. Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media, produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton, artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit OsirisPod.com.